Hello and welcome to episode number 11 of Making Media Now, a filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. On this installment of Making Media Now, we celebrate a first, an interview with a novelist. In this case, it's best-selling novelist Jane Healy. We're all about conversing with, as we say, media makers of all sorts. And seeing whereas books were certainly among the first forms of media, chatting with a novelist certainly made sense. It also made for a very lively and interesting conversation. When her daughters were born, Jane Healy left a career in high tech to become a freelance writer. Her passion for historical fiction became her new career when her first novel, The Saturday Evening Girls Club, was published in 2017. With the release of The Beantown Girls in 2019, Jane continued to fulfill her dream of writing lesser-known stories of women in history. Jane's upcoming novel, The Secret Stealers, is based on the true stories of the women of the Office of Strategic Services, the precursor to the CIA, during World War II. It will be released in April 2021. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, FC supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollaborative.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, we encourage you to please subscribe and leave a glowing review. We're all about the shameless plug. And now on to my conversation with novelist Jane Healy. Hello, Jane Healy. Hello. Welcome to Making Media Now. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Well, you have the distinction of being the first novelist that we've included on Making Media Now. And as I was just sharing with you um, a short time ago, when we conceptualized this podcast, we really did want to emphasize the making part and the media part. And, you know, the making is all about the creative process, the an idea pops into somebody's brain somehow, and all of a sudden, it reveals itself. I shouldn't say all of a sudden. Quite often, it's a quite lengthy process. It reveals itself <laughs> eventually as a film or as a piece of art or, in your case, as, as novels. And so we're, we're very, very interested in learning about individual creative process. And the media part, I mean, I guess aside from uh, cave drawings, books were the first media. Yes. So in you're representing that entire genre of media, so no pressure at all. I was going to say a little pressure, but that's okay. I'm up to the challenge. <laughs> so as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, Jane is uh, a published novelist of two best-selling novels. The first was the Saturday Evening Girls Club, and the second was the Beantown Girls. And you've got a forthcoming novel, I believe, in the next couple of months or weeks. Where do we at yes, now? We're uh, April 1st. April uh, the, 1st, okay. Yes. The Secret Stealers is coming out April 1st, so I'm pretty excited. Excellent. I can't wait to hear more about that. So let's back up just a bit. Um, your first published novel, if I'm, if I'm correct, was The Saturday Evening Girls Club, correct? Correct, yes. And that's a piece of historical fiction. And give us the uh, a synopsis of the plot. So it's based on the true stories of these women in this club called the Saturday Evening Girls Club, which was a club that was in Boston's North End at the turn of the 20th century. It was a group of 
Jewish and Italian immigrant women. And I actually learned about them through writing an article about their pottery, which is, you know, now antique and has become really collectible. And when I, I, I was intrigued with the name of Saturday Evening Girls Club Pottery. And I was like, well, what's the club? I've never even heard of this. I grew up in Boston, um, you know, went into the North End all, all, all the time and never have heard of these women. And so that kind of sent me on my way learning about this club. And it was all about, you know, they were really ahead of their time in terms of female empowerment and the club's um, founders offered scholarships to these women for different types of education. And, um, and so I, I was inspired by their stories. So really it's a, a, I, I kind of made a composite of, of the, some of the different women I had researched and it's two Jewish immigrant women and two Italian immigrant women. The four of them are friends and kind of what, their journeys like in the early 1900s as women in Boston and, and the choices they make. And the cho- some of their choices are very much um, as a result of their, the way they were empowered through the club. And the follow-up to that novel was also in the historical fiction vein, uh, yes. The Beantown Girls and the synopsis of that book. Yes. So The Beantown Girls, you know, after I, the Saturday Evening Girls, I wrote, um, you know, kind of in the fringes of my life for about 10 years. And so after that did relatively well, I wanted to write the kind of story I've always wanted to write. I wanted to write a big story, a war story, um, some romance, but um, but just kind of more of a big sweeping story. And I've always been fascinated with World War II because my grandfather was a firefighter on the Navy ships. And, and so I learned of these women called the Red Cross Clubmobile Girls, and they they drove Red Cross clubs on wheels that basically looked like the equivalent of modern day food trucks to the front lines of the war. And they'd serve, you know, quote, coffee, donuts, and smiles um, to the troops on the front lines. And I was really um, fascinated. The more I dug into that research, um, the more I found that their job was much more than just handing out coffee and donuts. They, they were like therapists and social workers to a lot of these young soldiers. So um, the story is about um, the protagonist is Fiona Denning. She learns that her um, fiance was is declared missing over the skies in Germany. His plane went down, and she's living in Boston and kind of adrift. And sees this ad for Red Cross Clubmobile Girls. They had this very sophisticated recruitment campaign all over the country, and convinces herself and her two friends. Viv and Dottie to join her and and go overseas and take this huge risk and take this you know huge chance at, in these jo- in these roles and it changed the trajectory of their lives. So, you mentioned that when writing your first novel, it was something I think you said you did on the fringes of your your spare time or your free time yes. uh, for about a ten year process. And I often yeah. hear that. Uh, you know, you hear that with filmmakers, particularly documentary filmmakers, you hear that with novelists. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm just always fascinated about the discipline that that requires. How did you, over a 10-year period of time, keep the storyline and the characters vivid in your imagination? Um, you know, I, I think it's just a matter of, like, giving yourself permission to work on it on a regular basis. So it's always kind of you know, you don't lose that kind of rhythm and that understanding of who these characters are. And yeah, I mean, it it was definitely in the fringes between like raising kids and doing freelance work and all of that stuff. Um, but yeah, I think it was, it, the discipline is a, is a huge, I think more than talent uh, with, with writing fiction, long form fiction, the discipline is like 
the what you need the most, quite honestly, because it's it, that's the hardest part even now for me is making sure I give myself permission to research enough, to write enough all the time. And when you're writing historical fiction in particular, you're you're kind of taking on an added burden of, you know, historical accuracy and verisimilitude. Yes. Um, have you ever found that you sort of painted yourself into a corner in, in the sense that you want your, you know, your characters to be able to act a certain way or say a certain thing. And you, you know, you've got to check yourself, you know, against maybe the fashion or the mores of the, of the time. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, my editor always jokes that like, you know, it's hard enough to be a fiction writer and I don't, she thinks historical fiction writers are crazy because it's like makes it a hundred times harder because you have to deal with all of the details and get, and the accuracy. So I, in terms of checking myself, I think that's something, um, you know, I do kind of a really solid base of research before I write a word. Uh, but then as I'm writing, I'm constantly going back um, to check for things like um, slang and lingo and accents and dialogue and also just dress and, and the little details that people seem to really love that you just have to get those right just as big as much as you have to get the big details right. So, so yeah, I mean, I do a big bulk of research up front, but it's a constant process as I'm writing too. As a, as a reader before you were published, were you drawn to historical fiction as a reader? I was. Yeah. I really, I've always loved historical fiction and you know, even now um, I think I'm going to stick, stick to my lane with historical fiction because I love having um, the history as a jumping off point for the story. I don't like, I have friends who write contemporary fiction. I'm like, how do you do that? You're just like, make up some people and like have them over, move around. Like, I don't even know how to do that. So, so, so yeah. Historical but, fiction, <laughs> essentially uh, your guardrails are already in place kind of. Yes. Yeah, the, exactly. You're the in the template con- of the times has been established. Right. Which I kind of like, and because I, I say to people like, you know, one of the things I always ask myself, because it's fiction, but it's historical, like if it didn't happen, could it have happened within the context of the time and the place? and the framework of that, that his, historical setting. So um, that's kind of one of the things I always do to check myself. Like it, it, it may not have happened, but could, is it possible and authentic to the time? Were there any uh, historical fiction novelists that, that inspired you or you look to as role models, so to speak? There's so many that so many that are doing great work now. But I mean, growing up, I loved Philippa Gregory. I love the other Bowling Girl and those. And she's just she's brilliant and she cranks them out so in a way that's so amazing. So that's definitely one that stands out. Um, but like right now, there's a lot of great ones: Marie Benedict and Pam Janoff and Lauren Willig and yeah, so many that I'm inspired by all the time and in awe of, quite frankly. So. You mentioned um, a little while back uh, your editor, and uh, I'm curious about the relationship between the writer and the editor. I'm not sure how how well this analogy holds up, but many, many times when I've spoken with film editors, you often hear that the movie really came together in the editing room, that, you know, a producer will, you know, come into an editing suite with lots of visuals and some thread, a broad thread of a story, but it's the editor who really allows them to see the story that's in there. Can you talk a little bit about the the dynamic in the world of fiction between the editor and the writer? 
Yeah, so there's, I have two editors that I've worked with now on three, on three books. So we are a pretty tight relationship and understand each other and they understand my writing and my process. So when I first, you know, when I'm on deadline, I have to submit my, the first, I don't call it the first draft, but the first version of the manuscript to my editor. And that's when that kicks in a really fairly lengthy editorial process. And so the first one or two rounds, sometimes more, but for me, it's been one or two rounds, We are the developmental edits. So that's kind of the macro stuff. Like you talked about, like, what's hanging, what's, you know, what plot threads are loose, what character needs a little bit tightening up, or, you know, this timeline doesn't make sense. You know, it's that those kind of big picture stuff. Um, and so I go through that process with, um, with my two editors. One's my head editor who manages the project from beginning to end, Alicia. And then Faith is a developmental editor and that's what developmental editors are the big picture editors. And then when we have that draft done, it's pretty much tight. Like it's, it's the book it's going to be. And then it goes into the copy editing, fact checking, proof reading stages. So that's yeah. And our editors, I think there's a misconception sometimes that editors are just people that sit at their desks with red pens and, you know, grab, make sure you know where you missed a comma or, you know, have a punctuation error. But how do editors work in terms of allowing you to see either, you know, uh, potential within the story that you may not uh, have seen or maybe bringing up, I don't know, inconsistencies or, or, or maybe even asking questions that, oh, yeah. that force you to think a little bit more about either a character or the plot. Well, it's funny, uh, we, you know, writer friends, we all joke about when you hand in your manuscript and you get the first thing you get back a couple weeks or three or four weeks later from your editor is the editorial letter. And like, you know, when you don't even want to open it when you first get it, because you're like, <laughs> you like run screaming from the room because you're oh, yeah. so afraid that it's going to be so much more work. And, and you know, it, for me with these two women I've worked with, like nine times out of 10, whatever that is in that editorial letter, they like nail it. They know, you know, this is missing. You've got to clean this up. This is, you know, and... Um, but it's always very scary to get it at first because you know how much work you have ahead of you. <laughs> you have to like read it and kind of like go out of the room or go for a run or do something and then like take a couple days and, and, and dig into the work. But, but yeah, that editorial letter is what really addresses all of those big picture issues that um, might be wrong with the manus- manuscript. But it's all, in my experience, it's all, always, always made the story stronger. You know, their, their feedback their comments um, have always made the story tighter and stronger. I mean, I'm, I'm allowed to push back, but mm-hmm. I really haven't had to um, in, in the last you know, few years. So. Yeah, what a special relationship. Yes. I, I would yeah. imagine. And, and I can't imagine that it's automatic, you know, between no. a writer and editor. I mean, it's a bit like uh, speed dating. Yes. And I, I think I just really got lucky with Alicia, my managing editor. Um, she's just brilliant. And she has such good instincts about storytelling and um, and then Faith, who is my developmental editor, um, we just really connected and clicked right away. And I think it's, I'm lucky because I think you, you do, you have to have a really good relationship. You also have to develop a thick skin over time and understand that at the end of the day, this is a product that's going out into the world and you want it to be the best it can be. And you got to put your ego aside and, mm-hmm. and, and take the feedback. 
I often um, have heard different sort of divergent commentary from writers along this along this line. There are writers that will uh, claim that they know how the book is going to end when they write the first word. And then there are the other writers that you hear them say things like, well, I thought I thought this character or the plot was going to go here, but it didn't want to go there. As the character came, you know, came alive and took on its own uh, will, so to speak, it had to go in another direction. Um, I never quite understand that one, but it's probably because I haven't immersed myself in the in the process, or maybe it's just (laughs) writer sounding, you know, sounding uh, a little bit self indulgent. Um, Where do you fall in that continuum? So I am definitely the former of those two. I and I, I've, I mean, I've, I've talked to writers recently that that talk about the characters having a mind of their own and doing things that they didn't expect, and I, I like don't understand that at all. <laughs> I just, I, not to say that it's not like whatever works for you and your creative process is is what works, right? Um, so what you just described, and I is um, plotters versus pantsers. Have you heard those expressions before? I have writing? not. Okay, so, so plotters are people like me who literally, before I write a first word, map out the whole book, chapter by chapter, scene by scene, event by event. So I know what's going to happen beginning to end. That, not to say it doesn't change over time sometimes, and I have to tweak things as I go, but that's, that's my process for the and um and I've gotten more maniacal with each book about it like I'm obsessed with like getting that stuff in um pantsers and I have you know Hank Philippi Ryan I was just chatting with her the other day she's she sits down at her desk and just starts writing like seat of her pants pants. yeah okay and and, um and just you know I don't know what's gonna happen today but and I I mean she's incredibly successful Edgar award-winning writer so you know it works for her I that's terrifying to me, like not having a plan <laughs> or a vision and just kind of figuring it out as I go along. Like I don't, I could never do that. Yeah. When you said pantsers, I, I was thinking of, uh, you know, the behavior of bullies on a schoolyard. But <laughs> yeah, that, no. that probably just says more about my trauma growing up. We, we don't have to go into that. So, so you're a planner, you're a planner and a plotter and yes, you're being much. disciplined through that. Yeah, I do. And it, um, it helps. I really just, I feel so much better once I have that roadmap, you know, so I can get, so I, when I face the manuscript every day, I know where I'm at and I know where I'm going, you know? Um, and like I said, I, not to say I don't tweak it along the way. I definitely do. Um, but, but yeah, having that roadmap is key for me. So each of your first two novels are told in the first person. Yes. And obviously that's a conscious decision. Yes. Uh, is there something liberating about that, or is there is, is there a responsibility, a greater responsibility to committing to the first person, whereas sort of that third person on, omniscient narrator is going to s- allow you to see the whole chessboard and move the pieces? Yes. The first person, by definition, is limited by their experience. Mm-hmm. So, tell me a little bit about that, uh, how you come to that choice, and. I don't know if it's sacrifice or commitment that is necessary to maintain that throughout. Yeah. So that's been interesting. I, for the third book, I, after doing the first two in first person, I was like, am I wimping out? Should, is it because I'm like too scared to do third person or too scared to do a dual narrative? Like, is, am I taking the easy route? Um, But 
the feedback from both books from readers, uh, particularly the Beantown Girls, is they they love first person because it makes them feel like they are in the story. It like, makes them feel like they are there. And so I ultimately went with first person again for this for the Secret Stealers. And like I said, I, I you know I was like, okay, Jane, like are you just not stretching yourself? But I really feel like that. Just thinking about readers' comments and feedback over the years, it just feels natural to the story um, mm-hmm. and authentic to the story to write it that way. Mm-hmm. In each of your novels, obviously, uh, relationships play uh, a crucial role. Do you feel that the essence of the relationships that you write about, you know, between the characters, how unique to the time period is the formation and the challenges around those relationships. So in other words, if you were to take the characters from the uh, Saturday evening girls club and switch them with the Beantown girls, you know, the essence of human relationship, how much would the historical context influence that? Well, I think quite a bit, honestly, although the forties was not, you know, there still wasn't a lot in terms of like progressiveness for, for women and women's behavior, but it was pretty constrained in the early 1900s. So I think it would, it would change it up quite a bit um, to, yeah. And, you know, just the dress and the language and, and um, the attitudes uh, and the, you know, the marital stuff. I mean, people were, people were still marrying relatively young in the forties, but they were marrying even younger in the early 1900s. So, so things like that, it definitely would, would change quite a bit. Yeah. And I would imagine, you know, writing as a, you know, as a modern contemporary woman also, you would have to be very disciplined about things like attitudes and certain, Mm -hmm. you know, certain manner of assertion. Yes. Yes. And that's where research really comes in to play. Like, you know, the Beantown Girls, I was really fortunate. I went back to Harvard. Um, The Schlesinger Library there is a great resource for American women's history. And they had tons of diaries and letters from the Red Cross Clubmobile girls um, from in World War II. And that, so you really got an understanding of like, um, like the, the dynamics of dating and the dynamics of friendships even and, and how, and behavior and how, how these women handled themselves around thousands of guys in the, in the field, you know, in, at war. And so that, that's when you really have to rely on the research to get those things right and make mm-hmm. sure that you're not trying to, you know, giving these women like contemporary slang, contemporary behavior in the 1940s. And once your research is done, uh, do you begin the writing then or is there a, is there a back and forth? Uh, do, do you continue to do research as you're fleshing out the novel? I am, you know, I, I do like a, a bulk of research before I write, even write the outline. Then I kind of map it all out in the outline. And, you know, and I, including in the, one of the reasons that outline is so helpful is I kind of make notes of like, okay, you need this research and this is where you can find it, you know, per chapter. So I can go back to it as I'm going. And, um, but it's, it is a constant, I'm also constantly again, it's like the little details of like, well, what was in the newspaper that day? And are like, what, you know, what's, I need to look at a restaurant menu from Washington, D.C. in 1942, or, you know, like random stuff like that, that you're kind of, it's always a constant, um, you know, constantly going back for little details like that, even when you have all the big, big details done. And what is your, what's your routine? How disciplined are you around a, a set writing routine? 
Uh, well, when I'm on deadline, I'm really disciplined. Right now I'm off deadline and just kind of ramping up for the promotion of Secret Stealers and trying to research my next project, figure out what that's going to look like. But when I'm on deadline, um, I write every day, usually usually around my girls' school schedule. So usually like drop them off, uh, write all, all day when they're in school, sometimes leave the house at night, depending on how tight my deadline is. And then um, I, I kind of map up, I have a calendar and if, if I don't hit a certain number of chapters per week, I work all weekend too. And I, I kind of also bake in at the end, I want to have a month of editing time on my, of self-editing before I even hand it off to my editor. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, it, it's a lot of discipline and um, I'll be honest, this, the secret stealers kicked my butt. Like it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. What made it particularly difficult? Um, the breadth of research was huge. It was French resistance and um, the women of the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, the precursors to the CIA. But I also pulled in women of the SOE, which is the British counterpart, and and the French resistance. So the Saturday Evening Girls Club, even the Clubmobile Girls program, like there were there were there's a finite amount of research about those people. Um, and but with this book, I have like a bookshelf right here of like 40 books and even more around the house and more resources online. And it was just an incredible amount of research. And then it was a big, big story. So it's almost, it's double the length of the Saturday Evening Girls Club. It's almost 500 pages. So it was just a huge, huge undertaking. I didn't plan on it being 500 pages. It just is the length that it is, but it was, it was really exhausting. <laughs> it, was, it was hard. <laughs> and are the characters and the plot, are they, are they staying with you once you've, you know, turned your light out for the, for the day and gone about your life? Are you, you know, if, you know, a regular nine to five job, most people are glad to be leaving that, uh, or at least when they went to offices, but, you know, glad to be leaving work in work. I always, and I probably romanticize this, um, imagine that, you know, a writer is sort of continually living with these characters and this plot and thinking yes. about them, you know, as if they were real, because in a very, in some sense, they are real. Yes. And so that's one thing I've learned when I'm on deadline and kind of like totally absorbed in the project is to trust my subconscious. And so, and so ultimately, if I, when I stop working I could be in the car, I could be going for a run. Um, if something pops into my head, it's usually um, related to the story. I stop whatever I'm doing and I, I dictate it into my phone because it usually helps me like figure something out that was, wasn't working or like fix a mistake or whatever it is. So I really, it is literally like eating, breathing and sleeping the project until I hand in that manuscript. It's because you, you've got to kind of, surrender to your subconscious when those little things pop up in your head because it's generally the things that fix the story. So that's do what you, I've learned. Do you read while you're writing? Fiction, nonfiction, media? If I read fiction, um, I don't ever read in the in like the times and time period that I'm writing because I get really nervous about other people's work, sub, even in the subconscious, bleeding into mine. I don't want to ever like... Yeah, sure. Like, yeah, so... So yeah, I, I do, but um, I have I read so much for research, and then I also like um, they call, you know do the author blurbs for other friends now. So 
I feel like when I'm on deadline, I don't get a lot of reading for pleasure, which is a bummer, but it's okay. What's your media diet consist of? Do you, you know, to sort of cleanse your mental palate or do you <laughs> binge watch television programs or, you know, do you, do you read um, comic novels? You know, I, I love to read um, like, you know, my daughter, my younger daughter is a huge reader. So I, I like, and she likes a lot of like YA fantasy sci-fi. So I'll, I'll, I'll pick up like, I recently read The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab, which is brilliant and on all the bestseller lists right now. That was a good one, like a good escape. So yeah, like something totally different than what I'm working on. I like to read or listen to podcasts or binge watch Netflix. We just went watched the whole season, that whole season of Bridgerton, which is like this Regency fantasy romance. And it's totally trashy, but it was, it was like a great escape. <laughs> Just what you needed. Yeah, exactly. Has there been interest from uh, the film or television world in any of your novels thus far? There has. And in fact, before uh, my husband and I were going on a work trip, he was he had to go to the Cayman Islands for a work trip on like March 7th. And I was on the plane and my agent called me and um, the producers of Downton Abbey had been were, were interested in the Secret Stealers, actually, my third book that had, oh, wow. and I, and at that time it was like literally the first draft he was sending them, which was kind of terrifying. But, um, but then a week later, the whole world shut down. So um, nothing, nothing since then. And there's been other like, Beantown Girls has had some interest. You know, there's been some interest over the years, but, um, but from what I understand, it's really a lightning in a bottle for all the pieces to come together for mm-hmm. for a book to ma- be made into a film. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's nice, nice to dream about, but, you know. When you're envisioning characters, do, um, uh, do celebrities or, you know, a- actors, actresses ever come to mind? Not really, but I do, I will say, like, I, I write, the way I think about writing and think about the story is very cinematically. Like, I, I picture it as a movie in my head, and I always say, like, the first draft, the hardest thing is getting, like, that movie in my head onto the page in the first draft, and um, so when I think about the characters, they're very much who I envision them and they're never any, they're not any famous people. If they're just, they are who they are, but it's been fun. Um, since the Beantown girls come came out, like readers will write me and be like, Anne Hathaway should play this character. And I like this person for that, you know, so that's kind of fun you know, to think about anyway. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Talk a little bit about your relationship with your readers how has that evolved uh, since the publication of your first of your first novel? Uh, you know, it's it's been it's been fantastic. I really I'm so super grateful to every person and book club out there in the world who, who's ever read one of my books, and um, and I hear from readers probably daily at least a couple emails, and I try to I respond to every single one, and um, because I'm just so it's it's amazing. It's a dream oh, come true for you for responding. Yeah. Yeah, I tr- I respond to every single one. I try to do as many book clubs as I can, like make you know meet, talk with book clubs now only on Zoom pretty much, um, because it's just yeah I I wouldn't be anywhere if it wasn't for these for these readers that have been so so wonderful. So, uh, are you privy to data that uh, reveals who's reading your book versus who's listening to your book? You know, I don't have the data on audio, to be honest. I I do have data on who's reading it, but I I don't have the data. I probably could get it. I just haven't ever asked. Um, the, but the the readers, it's, it's very available to me through my publisher. So 
it's generally um, it skews older, I think, but I think part of that is because older retired people have more time to read. You know, it's yeah. a lot of older women, um, you know, 55 and up and um, is, you know, is kind of my audience. So. And what has your role, if any, been in the uh, selection of narrators for your two novels? So in my contract, and I think if I am lucky enough to write another book, I'm going to try to see if I can change this. I don't have say over who the narrator of the story is. I have, they'll give me input. They'll send me a voice sample um, when they decide who it's going to be. And if I really don't like them, I can push back, but, um, but I don't get to choose. So for the Beantown Girls, I just adored the audio, the narrator is Sarah Molo Christensen. She's a she does a ton of audiobooks and she's an actress and and she just did such a beautiful job that I requested her for the Secret Stealers and they are they're trying to get her but um because of covid they they haven't uh, I, I normally the audiobook would be done by now but uh because of covid they've kind of waiting till the last minute for it so i i expect to hear from alicia my editor about who they've chosen as a narrator soon um and if it's not sarah they'll they'll send me some audio samples to make sure that i'm okay with whoever it is well when you do get to the uh point where you do have say in that you know i just want you to keep in mind i do n- audiobook narration uh Absolutely. it's a it's a bit <laughs> of a stretch but i might be able to do a passable 22 year old woman circa 1944 i'm right. just putting it out there I, I will keep that in mind for sure <laughs> i appreciate that final question for you if you could have dinner with one living writer or it doesn't have to be living one one writer living or not <laughs> Who might that person be? I'm such a Jane Austen nerd. I'd love to have dinner with Jane Austen. I just, yeah, I still, I read Pride and Prejudice once a year, probably. So yeah, <laughs> that, that would be, that would be, oh, actually, or Madeline Langle, uh, Wrinkle in Time, her novel, um, her young adult novel was like huge, hugely influential on me when growing up. I felt like I was that main character, um, that nerdy girl, Meg. So, so that would be another one. That's great. And I love hearing that you reread books. Yes. Uh, yeah. I do that myself often. And yeah. I, I find it amazing where, you know, if a 10 year span can go by between a time that you first read a book and then revisit it, it's an entirely different experience. Isn't it? It's so crazy. My, my younger daughter is on a Stephen King kick and um, she just read The Stand recently. So I'm like, I'm going to reread that. And it's like, it's just a whole different experience than I read it probably 15 years ago or 20 years ago. So yeah, crazy. Especially in a pandemic. I mean, it's, it's kind of like about a pandemic. So. Yeah, how much reality and how much fiction is <laughs> yeah. in there? Well, Jane Healy, thank you so much for your time. We're going to be uh, keeping an eye out for April 1 and for the Secret Stealers. And I wish you so much continued great luck. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Michael. This was so much fun. I really appreciate it. Oh, final question. So if people yes. want, want, want to find out more about you and your books, give yourself a plug. Where can we go? Oh, yes. I think the best way is um, janehealy.com, my website, um, J-A-N-E-H-E-A-L-E-Y.com. And that has my, you can sign up for my newsletter for all like upcoming events and, um, and all my social media contact information is on there and my email is on there as well. So. Okay. I did the premature goodbye, but this time I'm serious. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Have a great day, Jane. Thanks again. You too. Thank you. Thank you.